Welcome to Blueprint for Wealth. And today with me is my special guest, Mimi Duff. Welcome, Mimi. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me today. It's, it's great to have you. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Mimi and then we'll jump right into it. And by the way, we're going to try to cover a few topics today. The takeaways are what's it like being a woman in the financial services industry back when she started and when she uh, and today. Number two, uh, what are the challenges that clients are facing in the financial services industry today and how or how is GenTrust dealing with it? And then number three, Mimi's going to tell us a little bit more about GenTrust's unique way of servicing their clients. She's a senior client advisor at GenTrust and part of the advisory team. She develops and serves institutions, high net worth individuals, and really cultivates family relationships. But she started her uh, career in financial services years ago in the banking and finance industry, working starting at uh, Goldman Sachs in fixed income portfolio management, trading, research and strategy. She moved on to Barclays and then to Tudor Investment Corp as the fixed income portfolio manager and strategist within their funds flow research. She graduated from Cornell University, a great school in operations research and industrial engineering. And she's a frequent contributor to CNBC and Bloomberg. I've seen her on CNBC and she's fabulous. She really responds to the questions really fast and, and articulately. And she lives in Greenwich, Connecticut with her husband and four daughters. Yikes. But uh, it's great to have you on board. And um, the first thing I wanted to touch on was what was it like coming into financial services when you came into the industry? And what's it like today as a woman? What, what are the challenges that you faced and that you face today? Yeah, so I would say, um, well, first of all, I graduated in 93, so I'll age myself. You, but, don't, uh, you don't have to tell us. I, I just gifted myself uh, almost 30 years experience. So I'm just going to frame <laughs> the conversation that way. But okay. uh, and I studied engineering, which primarily back then was really, really heavy men. So I got a bit of training um, for the heavy men industry in when I was in college, frankly. And coming into Goldman in 1993, the I would say the training program was more 50-50 uh, women and men. So that was great. Now, at the wow. higher levels, then and as it is now also, there's just a stark, you know, it's a stark difference. And there are very, very few, very senior women in the investment banks. Um, that, I think, happens for many, many reasons, and including families, choices. You know, in many cases, a spouse is traveling all the time, maybe has a also really challenging, demanding career. Uh, so yes. there's... There's a lot of factors there. What I would say is that for young women, we're missing role models in some of those uh, big institutions. Um, you know, at, at Gen Trust, I'm working now with some of my former colleagues, which is so excellent. It was a big driver for me to come here. And uh, I was commenting with some of my colleagues today, we're more 50-50, but broadly, I think the institutions are still skewed, skewed toward more men, especially at the higher levels. How can that change? What would you do to change the industry to make it more equitable gender wise? Well, I really hope I'm, I like to think that we can take the silver linings from COVID. And I think COVID has provided men and women a great deal more flexibility. And I'll just be 
perfectly honest here. I'm a, I'm a little saddened that it took the guys uh, coaching the football team or the soccer team at home to say, hang on a second, this does work, this flexibility here and there. But I do think that companies are granting a greater degree of flexibility. Um, when I had my four daughters in a span of five years, like those were really, really hard years <laughs> when yeah. I was waking up at 445 in the morning and getting to work between 630 and seven. They were hard years to have little, little kids. So um, I think a bit of flexibility goes a long way. More, um, more women at the top will also help a lot, you know, because as it is now, these very few women at the top don't feel like they have more than enough political capital to help other women. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think about it. I, I have a good friend out on the West Coast who runs a, an RIA, a registered investment advisory firm, and she started it in 1990. Uh, from scratch and recently sold it to a family office, which is also run by a woman. So I think they're sort of, they're, they're uh, trendsetters, if you will. And I also think of Kathy Wood at ARC. Uh, she's, you know, set up a bunch of mutual funds and she's the CEO of, of, uh, of those funds. And more and more women are rising to the top like you. And I, I congratulate you for your success. So what's the challenge that we're all facing? I mean, we see that, uh, the Fed is increasing interest rates. They just increased rates again. The market is acting uh, very squirrely. It's, uh, it's very volatile. Um, how are you handling this with your clients and how, what's GenTrust's strategy to uh, placate the nervousness and anxiety that's going on? So first, let me just frame the, the conversation a bit in terms of where the Fed's at. The Fed funds rate right now, uh, yesterday the Fed hiked again, we're at three and a quarter. And importantly, uh, the, the, when they surveyed Fed officials in the meeting, they felt that this year end, uh, the funds rate would be at 4.3% uh, and next year end, 2023, 4.6%. These are much higher than was anticipated say a year ago. Um, okay. Just also to put it in perspective, the unemployment rate is at a 50-year low at 3.5%, and inflation is at a 40-some-odd high. So the Fed is doing this, raising rates to help slow the economy and bring that inflation in line so that they can achieve longer-term price stability. Their target for inflation is 2%. The, the U.S. Fed Central Bank has a two-mandate approach. They're targeting both employment and inflation. Most central banks only target inflation. So what we're right. seeing is around the globe, uh, central banks raise. Sweden raised 100 basis points the other day. Switzerland, mm -hmm. 75 today. Bank of, or yesterday was that Bank of England, 50. It's a global move. So how are we handling that for our investors? And this, and this is also, by the way, um, as we're recording this, we're in, at the end of September when it finally gets... Uh, broadcast, it'll probably be towards November, December. So put yourself in November, December. Um, but yeah, how are you dealing with that today? Yeah. So we came, we, we really forecasted these higher rates a year ago, or even prior to that. We thought rates were too low. The economy was booming. And we really felt like, why is the Fed still easing? Which they were in the last, in, in, fall of 2021, they were still buying securities every day. 
And we recognize the Fed has to stop easing before they can start tightening economic conditions. So at that time, we were underweight equities. We were underweight fixed income. We were overweight real assets, which have a greater amount of exposure to um, commodities and inflationary um, pressures. So okay. coming, that's that was our positioning coming into 2022. Now, um, that enabled us to really square up in June when equities were at their at the time low. Um, they had pulled back about 20%. And just for perspective, we tend to have these 20% drawdowns every three to five years. That's kind of part of life when you're looking at the long-term history of stock markets. Bigger declines of, say, 30 to 50% tend to happen more every 10 years, and they are also tend to be accompanied by something much more dramatic, like the, the financial crisis. We can all kind of recall that incident where the stock market was down more than 50%. Or the pandemic, frankly, we were headed in that direction before you saw a massive global response from the central bank community. Or Russia's threat of nuclear war. Yeah, like these bigger- Which scares everybody. It so. sure does. It, and, and especially if that were to escalate more, I think you'd really see risk assets take it on the chin even more. Okay. So for context coming in, we were underweight equities. We were able to square up. We squared up a bit more on the fixed income side. We felt like, um, and we continue to feel this way, for long-term, long-only investors, which is what we are, these entry points are so much more exciting than a year ago. A year ago, you had S&P, like the uh, equity market PE valuations were really stretched. You had yields really low. It just, when you thought about like, well, what's my chance of making a decent amount of money or a decent amount of return over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years, we're much better positioned now. So as of right now, we're fairly neutral across the board. We have been rebalancing portfolios. By that, I mean, as equities drop, we'll buy more equities to hold um, the uh, appropriate weight in the portfolio. But we're looking... Right. We're looking closely at levels to see where we might add exposure because we do think that okay. these are pretty significant um, drops here. Are alternative investments a, a high risk in this environment, given the inflationary pressures that we're experiencing? Yeah. So alternatives, the, the key driver there is you have a massive lack of liquidity, right? So you really want to be compensated for that lack of liquidity. And we at GenTrust have an alternatives um, arm, and we do a good deal of due diligence on anything that we would recommend to clients or put on our platform. With that filter in mind, are the returns going to compensate you above and beyond the lack of liquidity that you're likely to suffer through? That's a good analysis. So it's evaluating the risk and lack of liquidity versus what you're willing to tolerate over the period of time that you're going to be investing. So. That's, uh, that's an interesting uh, approach. Does that satisfy your investors? Are they okay with that approach? Are they comfortable? Are you making them comfortable under the circumstances? I, th I think our, our investors are comfortable with their portfolios. Good. I think that they... Look, we, we've heard from other, uh, you know, outside folks or people will come to us and say, I don't know what's going on in my portfolio. 
um, down this much. And if we take a closer look, we see potentially heavy tech concentration, which okay. last summer, last fall, Very risky. It's, it's not only risky because it's more volatile, it's also really exposed to higher rates. And we spent a lot of time making sure that our clients didn't have over concentrations to tech. Now, many of our clients work in the tech industry and they do have some exposure there, right? But, sure. but um, we were very, uh, very aware of the risks to higher rates, say, that tech takes on. Um, with respect to the alternatives, we do think there is a diversifying, there, there's a purpose for alternatives. In some cases, they can be um, tax advantaged. Obviously, our, most of our clients are after tax investors. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the smaller institutions potentially don't have the same tax impact. But um, that we look at it through a lens of liquidity, um, returns, taxation, all of those things come into play. So getting to the third thing that I wanted to focus on is tell us about GenTrust's platform. What, what is it that makes GenTrust unique as compared to other registered investment advisory firms? Yeah. So the, just a, a bit more background about RIAs, you know, we're a multifamily office, we're fiduciary and all the RIAs are fiduciaries, meaning we don't get paid to sell stuff, right? We're on the same side of, of the table as our clients and we get paid advisory fees for that. Um, what sets us apart is we primarily lead with the investment side and our investment team has more than 150 years experience on the institutional side of trading desks. By that, I mean servicing pensions, insurance companies, being, you know, managing risk at hedge funds, not on the private wealth arm of the banks where some portion of the compensation of those advisors is coming from selling stuff for the most part. So both we're, we are fiduciaries, we have a lot of experience in risk management and um, this 150 years experience on, on the institutional side, I think really sets us apart. The other bits is we're very transparent. So our clients will know when we are right and when we are wrong because we offer a, you know, a snapshot whenever they want of their performance versus a benchmark, which is how the entire institutional world thinks about finance. The, the pensions of the world, the insurance companies, they have a benchmark, meaning they're tracking their returns versus a bond index and a, an equity index, a commodities index. We do that same thing for our clients. And we have a very humble um, uh, goal of beating our index after our fees and providing these other services like financial planning, like making sure that our clients are, are uh, well covered on the estate and, and as the estate side on the accounting side, um, the stuff that your firm and others uh, can provide. For the most part, we stay in our lane. We focus on the, uh, the investment side of the equation and we think we do a good, good job at that. But we are, I would say the transparency sets us apart. And finally, um, the, the way we look at risk, uh, because we are kind of in our hearts, risk managers, we tend to, um, we look at potential risk outcomes and we can stress test portfolios against them. And this again is very much a, like a hedge fund thing an institutional asset manager type thing. Hey, what types of bad things can happen in the future world? Could there be this kind of crisis, that kind of, and how would my 
my, how would my portfolio perform under that circumstance? So that's also a big differentiator for us. We lead with that risk management side too. What's the typical client at Gen Trust? What do they look like? Hard to say. It's hard to say. It could be, I'll give you some examples. It could be an entrepreneur who is uh, coming up against a liquidity event. We would want to make sure that they were well covered ahead, well ahead of that liquidity event on right. uh, both the financial planning, also the estate planning, the tax planning. This is, these are complicated matters. Um, that could be one situation. Another situation, multi-generational family wealth would be another situation. Um, a business sale. We actually have a lot of financial professionals as clients. Um, you know, folks that just, they, they know us, they recognize what, what we can bring to the table. I like to say to those folks that like, we're doing what you would do if you were doing this full time. Right. Um, yeah. So, and, and many financial professionals have, uh, restrictions on when they can trade their personal accounts and what the holding periods are. So for them, it really makes sense to have a managed account. Um, there are other situations where you just have very wealthy clients and, um, you know, they, they trust us to know what they don't know uh, for whatever reason. Most, most money is made in a very narrow way, whether you've, you know, you've made a special widget and you've sold it and, and then you, keep your wealth in a very diversified way. What um, would, would you say the biggest challenges RIAs are facing today and into the future? Well, uh, one of the things um, I think is brand recognition because the RIA side, there's just so many RIAs, right? Like mm -hmm. the JP Morgan Wells of the world, like, oh, I've heard of them or they can see when you deposit $2 million into your bank account, they're calling you, <laughs> right? They're seeing the dollar signs and they're making the outgoing call. So I would say there's a bit more onus on the potential clients to say, hang on a second, do I want that guy who's going to sell me something or should I spend a bit more time trying to figure out what this landscape's all about? Um, that's one challenge. On the flip side of that, everybody that I really know and respect that has been on that bank-based non-fiduciary side has moved in the direction of fiduciary. So I do think there's a massive shift in the direction of fiduciary. Um, so that I think is giving us uh, tailwinds. Um, so when you say bank-based, you're referring to the to the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch's, the Morgan Stanley's, the JP Morgan's, the Goldman Sachs's of the world versus the RIAs that truly don't sell product that's associated with the bank, either loans or whatever it is that they're doing. On the, the devil's advocate, you know, would say, well, they, they also offer, you know, bank services that you can't offer. How do you compete with that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're not a bank. Um... But the flip side of that is we have relationships at all the banks. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody negotiates a mortgage better than I do. <laughs> I've been a rates person my whole life. Uh, and ah. I know a good rate when I see one. Um, so, yeah, like we do have we we do. We stay in our lane. We're not lenders. Um, we right. have relationships at, at many big banks and we can help clients. But you help your clients find the best Absolutely. source of funds. 
Absolutely. So, well, that's great. Um, you know, this has been great. I, I, again, as a successful woman in the financial services industry, I congratulate you and, uh, and having overcome a lot of the challenges that you probably faced and many of your compatriots faced 30 years ago. Um, you know, it's still a, a glass ceiling in many ways. We've got to overcome that as, as a, as a society. Um, uh, that's my own two cents on it, but, uh, I congratulate you on that. And I also congratulate you on a highly successful career at GenTrust and I hope, hope it continues in the, in the long distant future. Thank you so much for having me on today. Absolutely. And thanks for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Stay tuned for an educational moment right after this. Hi, welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth and your educational moment. And today we're talking about alternative investments. We just heard about an expert from an expert in alternative investments. Let's learn a little bit about them. So let's talk about what an alternative investment is. How do they work? And what's the regulatory environment today for them? And what are some of the AI alternative investment strategies that we're looking at today? An alternative investment is an unconventional financial asset. It's unconventional or not conventional in the sense that it's not cash, it's not stock, and it's not a bond or mutual fund, which means that it's something different. And what could that be? Well, it could be a tangible asset or an intangible asset. The tangible assets include precious metals, like gold and platinum. They include commodities, such as real assets that are mostly natural resources, maybe agricultural products, oil, natural gas. It may include real estate and personal property, such as equipment or antique vehicles or fancy vehicles, such as Maseratis and Ferraris, and other hard assets that fall into this category. And it may include collectibles. There's a great list on the website that deals with alternative investments for uh, Investopedia. And they list the following as uh, potential collectibles that people engage in investing in for profit, such as rare wines. I mentioned vintage cars, fine art, Mint condition toys. Imagine that Buzz Lightbeer, Lightyear toy that has never been opened before in a mint package. Stamps, coins, and of course, my, one of my favorites, baseball cards. Intangibles include hedge funds, private equity and venture capital, and private debt and structured products. When we're talking about private equity, that really includes a broad category that refers to capital investment that's made by investors into private companies or essentially companies that are not listed on a public exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. There are many subsets of private equity. Venture capital is one of them. That focuses typically on startups and early stage ventures. Also growth capital, which helps more mature companies expand or restructure or buyout funds where a company or one of its divisions is purchased outright by a merchant capital fund. An important part of private equity is the relationship 
between the investing firm and the company that receives the capital. Private equity companies often provide more capital to the firms they invest in. They also provide benefits like industry experience or talent sourcing or mentorship to the founders of the business. Private debt typically refers to investments that are not financed by your typical lenders like banks or traded on an open market. The private part of this term is really important. It refers to the investment instrument itself rather than the borrower of the debt because both public and private companies can borrow privately. Private debt is leveraged when companies need additional capital to grow their businesses. In fact, private equity firms often use private debt sources to help finance acquisitions of private companies. The companies that issue the capital are typically referred to as private debt funds, and they make money in two ways, through interest payments and the repayment of the initial loan, plus maybe an equity kicker on top of the initial loan. A hedge fund is an investment fund that trades relatively liquid assets and uses various investment strategies with the goal of earning a high return on the investment. Hedge fund managers specialize in a variety of skills to execute their strategies, such as long short equity or market neutral investing or volatility arbitrage or quantitative strategies that use algorithms to trade the securities. They're usually exclusive and available only to institutional investors such as public endowments of universities or pension funds. How do they work? Well, as I mentioned, the, the alternative investment world typically favors institutional investors because it requires a lot of capital and a lot of uh, certainty to invest in these products. It also may be extended typically to accredited investors, wealthy investors, people who have more than a certain level of income and are sophisticated at investing. Because of the way these funds are structured and these assets are uh, invested in, they're illiquid. They cannot be sold easily like stocks and bonds can be on the public market. And because of that, they're harder to value. There may only be one kind of gold coin that is that exists in the world of that specific type from that specific year, and therefore, how do you value it? Or a piece of artwork. Auction houses typically get involved with that. Appraisers get involved, but it's really what a willing buyer is willing to pay a willing seller. And again, AIs are uncorrelated to conventional asset classes, which means that they move up or down independently of where the stock market and the bond market go. Importantly, they're unregulated. Now that doesn't mean they're completely unregulated as you'll see in a minute, but because of their unique qualities and because they're so illiquid and it requires a significant amount of risk tolerance to invest in, they're not available to everyone. Now when I say AIs are generally unregulated, it's the AI funds and managers that could be subject to regulation. First of all, limited partnerships and limited liability companies are formed under state law and subject to state law regulation. The Investors Investment Advisors Act of 1940 may cause 
alternative investment fund managers and investment advisors who sell these funds to be treated as investment advisors who must register in order to sell these funds. The private fund advisor exemption may actually exempt many of these large fund managers, but most people who get involved with alternative investments may need to register under the Investment Advisors Act. And then states also independently regulate and require registration of investment advisors that sell alternative investments. The Investment Company Act of 1980 may require alternative investment funds to register with the Securities Exchange Commission if they exceed certain size, more than 100 investors, or do not contain qualified purchasers who have a certain level of assets and sophistication. Otherwise, they're not licensed, they're not authorized to do business, and they're not regulated to invest in and sell ownership interests in AI funds. So because of that, you've got to be cautious in what you invest in, in terms of alternative investments. So the AI strategies that are uh, incorporated today, again, institutional investors, pension funds, endowments of large universities, uh, big uh, union investment funds, have lots of funds available to allocate a portion of their portfolio to diversify the portfolio and invest in alternative investments. These investments, again, have a low correlation to stocks and bonds and cash. Accredited investors also may participate through their investment advisory firms. But today, non-accredited, regular retail investors can participate in exchange-traded funds and mutual funds that engage in the investment in alternative investments. But the fees and the risks of those investments usually are quite high. And again, hard assets like gold or oil and gas investments or real estate offer a hedge against inflation and may make sense. If you want to know more about alternative investments, we can refer you to a qualified investment advisor or investment, investment manager to help you make decisions on whether or not you should be investing in alternative investments. I'm Wayne Zell, and thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth and our educational moment. And tune in next time for a special guest and another special topic. Have a great week.